Hey, Nick. So welcome to the Knowledge of the College podcast. Uh, really excited to have you here. I've heard really great things about you. And, um, you know, just uh, for the audience, like, would you mind introducing yourself, kind of telling them a little bit about your background, where you're from, and, and what you do right now? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Nikola Jovicic. Uh, everyone calls me Nick. Um, I was born in Serbia. I'm 23 years old. Uh, when I was four years old, uh, my parents moved us out to a small uh, Middle Eastern nation called Qatar. And uh, I was there in a British school, uh, hence the lack of accent, <laughs> um, till I was 18. And then at 18, I moved to Canada. Uh, I'm enrolled now in uh, the University of Waterloo. I'm doing my mechanical engineering degree here. So that's a brief snippet of my life. That's incredible. So you moved around as a kid. What was that like? Uh, um, when I was four, I didn't really understand much. Uh, I just, my parents kind of told me that we were moving to a place that I would speak English. So I, for like a good year, I thought it was England. <laughs> it was extremely <laughs> hot. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was cool. Like, um, uh, you know, there's a, I know there's a lot of some stigmatism about the Middle East and the U.S., but uh, where I grew up, uh, it's like Dubai and that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a very wealthy nation. It's very interesting that a lot of the people there are there to work, so they're expats. Um, so my school was just full of expats, mostly Brits, a lot of, uh, uh, then a lot of people from India, Pakistan, um, other nations, like one of my best friends is Palestinian. Some Canadians even were there. Um, so yeah, it was interesting and introduced me to a lot of cultures at a very young age. Uh, uh, kind of, yeah, I think it really made me a better rounded person as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, it was, it was interesting. It's definitely, um, I find myself hard to relate with anyone else especially here in canada that didn't grow up in that kind of setting but yeah like it was, was interesting i was gonna say was there a culture shock uh when you when you moved to canada was it sort of different for you that's the thing like um because i was exposed to so many cultures i feel like it was less so because you know you watch american movies and kind of and you can't get away like YouTube. I watched mostly American, like American, Canadian, British YouTube. Um, my girlfriend is Canadian. We actually met back home in, in Qatar. So like even through her, it, it, there definitely was some things that were a bit of a cultural shock, but not to the extent I'm sure people feel like coming, like my university has a lot of uh, uh, Chinese students, like, students from china and i'm it it looks like it's a much more of a cultural shock for them than it is for me like i adapted relatively quickly and i formed a canadian group of friends here relatively quick that's pretty cool so what made you choose waterloo so um i was when i was 18 we have a grade 13 in british high schools and basically they're uh their system kind of qualified me only for either British universities or Canadian. Um, when I was, so I applied to about 10 universities. I got into about eight of them. Uh, 
five in the UK, four, uh, yeah, five in the UK, three in Canada. Uh, and then when I was doing my research about the British schools, um, so they're all three-year programs. Everything was for mechanical engineering. This is kind of what I figured figured out I wanted to do. Um, uh, I was looking at the British universities. They were pricey. Um, they're three-year programs, and after you finish the programs, it's actually pretty hard to find a job since uh, UK is relatively overly populated for what its economy can hold, and they very heavily prioritize uh, British nationals, which is fair enough. Um, and then I, then kind of my girlfriend relatively introduced me to looking into Canada. Um, I, I saw that the University of Waterloo has a great reputation in North America, and one thing that really drew me in was their co-op program. So I, like, when I started, I only went to school for four months, one semester, and then the second semester, I went straight to work. Uh, I worked in a, a company called uh, MAN, M-A-N, uh, Diesel and Turbo. I was doing, uh, my father is also in hydro, so... I, I worked a bit with him, and then through him, I kind of had the experience to get this job. Um, yeah, we they do uh, diesel engine uh, generators. Uh, they're part of the Volkswagen group. Um, yeah, so that was my first uh, experience. I realized I didn't like hydro. And then uh, I, I swapped into what I really like to do, which is automotive. And I've had now two years of automotive experience as long, along with schooling and i should be graduating in eight months so oh, it's pretty cool stuff man that's yeah. out of my league i'm, I'm more <laughs> of a more of a sales guy myself not too uh technical but the technical stuff really fascinates me and uh you know i'm curious to find out like so like where do you see sort of like in the sort of like environment that we're in today Technologies advancing rapidly, like sort of where do you see your skill set being applied in the marketplace? Like, do, are you working on any interesting projects right now? Or do you have any ambitions to sort of like, you know, apply those skills directly? So I kind of uh, try to cover all my, so I, like I'm still, uh, I, I'm still a Serbian passport holder. Um, so a big priority for me was to stay in Canada. And I do want to start our life here. I feel, uh, I don't want to go back to the Middle East. It, of course, it has its um, benefits, but as a young person, it has a lot of drawbacks. It's mostly a 30-plus demographic back home. And uh, I, I do want to start a life here in Canada, so I made sure I secured a job uh, with a company called uh, Mitchell Plastics. They do uh, um, automotive car interiors. So I was doing the 2020 Ford explorer program so anything you touch on the ip i i was involved in uh, that car is coming out i think it's going to be announced pretty soon in about two months or three months um and then another thing i'm working on right now is my fourth year design project which i'm doing in tandem with the startup so that's kind of my ambitious uh, uh goal um what it is it's uh so there's a phd uh, major here in Waterloo, uh, his name is Bijan. He um, he developed a specialized sensor that can read ferromag ferromagnetic signatures from underground pipelines. So you can take the sensor and scan it over a pipeline, and uh, the readings 
will uh, tell you whether it has any defects such as cracks or rust. So what uh, I'm doing right now with uh, three of my other friends is I'm developing a uh, robot mechanism. So you can attach these sensors to, and it should be really versatile. So it can accommodate for different diameters of pipes as well as, um, you know, some ergonomic issues for uh, people to be able to take it over pipelines and for it to be stable, hold these sensors stable because they are very sensitive. And as well, um, because they read ferromagnetic signatures, nothing that I make can have steel or, or any, any iron in it because that would interfere with reading. So that's our biggest kind of uh, constraint, um, especially so we can't use any like screws, for example, or any uh, clips. Um, it, it exclusively has to be aluminum and plastic. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. And potentially I'd like to, in December, uh, take this startup back to Qatar, uh, and see if, uh, if I can get some potential investment since my father is in the field and he has some relatively good connections, but that's kind of my ambitious goal. I, I, I figured I'd stabilize myself first and then. Uh, have, have a job lined up and if this works out amazing if not I'm perfectly happy with uh, I, I have a good reputation and uh, a professional standing with the company Mitchell Plastics and I have no problem in uh, working in the automotive industry it's kind of what I wanted to do anyway well that's uh, a pretty interesting project man I gotta say that's uh, thank you. that is pretty cool how do you get over those like sort of technological challenges or not being able to use metal like how, how would you produce something like that? So um, there's multiple ways. Um, so this is a relatively low volume product, as in, you know, a company might have one and they keep it for 10 years and we just provide additional uh, service components. So it, that actually really helps because that means I don't have to use any mass production methods to make it. Therefore, um, I can actually use 3D printing technology to make a viable product. I just sell it for a large markup and it would be very expensive anyway because uh, we're selling to these massive companies. So uh, my first, so through my co-ops, I came across uh, SLS 3D printing. It's uh, laser sintering. So what it does is it laser sinters plastic. Um, uh, and that gives it the mechanical bond. So there's powdered plastic and then laser comes over top and it solidifies a layer. And then the, and then like this platform moves down, deposits more powder, the laser goes over and continuously makes this product. And uh, through different optimization, so we have a very specialized optimization software here in the university um, that can, so you can input forces uh, that would be acting on a specific object and it would create a organic optimized structure within it uh, thus um, reducing the amount of material you need so you all you do is uh, in mechanical engineering we have a thing we use constantly is the safety factor it's, it's actually a very simple formula it's just your max stress over um, your uh, uh, your uh, uh, yield point so uh, that uh, so you, you just put in the safety factor, you put in your forces, and it just optimizes the structure for you. 
and then I can give this to the 3D printing company and they can print whatever I need uh, using this, uh, using SLS, which gives me incredible mechanical properties. And the good thing about SLS is actually uh, I can put it in a tumble um, uh, finisher and it would give me a really nice surface finish and it would be a very presentable product. So this is what I was kind of hoping to do because then it would be completely plastic. Uh, actually, I can add aluminum powder with the plastic to give it even higher rigidity, which is wow. another thing we're planning to do, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I need That's to see pretty interesting I stuff. Yeah. I think it's really cool what uh, is happening with 3D printers right now. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's interesting where you're faced with like a, a hurdle where you can't use metal, so you're, you're using that technology uh, sure. because... I mean, like, do you see there being, what, what kind of future do you see from, you know, with your background experience, what kind of future do you see with 3D printing? Could you imagine yourself making other products with that method? Oh, for sure. Uh, for sure. Well, the only thing is uh, what people don't seem to understand in the general public is the 3D printing is excruciatingly slow. So anything mass produced is unviable. Um, one thing that's a shame, I think, in in North America is in Europe, well, I was talking to the owner of the 3D printing company that, in, that owns this technology. And in Europe, um, a lot of the companies uh, invested very heavily in industrialized 3D printing, so massive 3D printers. And that's what he has. He has huge SLS 3D printers. And that's why I can actually make this full robot that would be like two meters by two meters by a meter in his 3D printer. Whereas, you know, the ones you see usually in the U.S. are like little desktop ones, usually. Um, And Europe invested very heavily, well, European, Western European nations such as Germany and France invested very heavily in those huge ones, which I think is much more business viable. And for example, in you already probably used something that was 3D printed, like last... uh, uh, airplane ride you took uh, if you if you went in an A380 they actually have 3D uh, laser centered metal components within the airplane so they physically laser center powdered metal and then they make and they install it into the airplane so there are definitely products out there that are already 3D printed I just think North America went up it it's cool like that we can have it on our desk and make something small in there. But um, from a business standpoint, uh, you're selling these machines that, you know, someone's going to keep probably for 10, 15 years, maybe use three, four times. (laughs) If you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Not much practical business strategy. Whereas I think in Europe, those huge 3D printers that are sold for a big markup and then they actually are, are making low quantity, products is much more um much smarter in a sense uh but i see that the push is in north america slowly starting to reach what they started doing in europe which is good are you contributing to the push are you pushing waterloo to to get get some european equipment Um, yeah they're they're slowly starting to do it on their own because they see the push too that's pretty cool so tell me i mean like in your program how many engineers are um, how many people are doing what you're doing? Um, in, in sense of mechanical engineering? Yeah. 
Uh, so my class start, it's, it's very, comp University of Waterloo, I, I think was ranked number two this year in terms of en engineering schools in Canada, or was it, it was one or two with Toronto. Uh, it's a very competitive program. We started off with about 110 people. Now we're down to about 70 in the last year. Um, and then about half of, I don't recognize about half of my class. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so there's a lot of dropout turnover from the next semester. So um, it's a very, it's a competitive, it starts off with 200, uh, usually around 250. And they're split, and then they split us up into what we have here in Waterloo called uh, streams. So there's four stream and eight stream. I'm in four stream, and that meant that I only worked for four months, uh, uh, I only studied for four months, and then I went straight to work. Whereas the eight stream people, they studied for eight months, and then they went to work for four months. And there's four months on, four months off until the end of your program. Is it common for students to work for startups or is it more common to work for like larger industrial companies? Um, I think there's a pretty good mix of where, so uh, a lot, actually, no, a, a lot of the engineers from Waterloo uh, aim to go to the big boys in Cali. So Apple, Facebook, Google, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of my friends actually that I'm going to, even the guys I'm hanging out tonight all worked in Apple last semester. Um, I, like, I think it's cool, but I didn't really have that ambition to work in a big company. I think you just get a lost in the sea of people. Um, I worked for eight months uh, in a co-op. This is when, like, I had that realization is I worked eight months um, in a company called the uh, Flextronics, you might have heard of them. Um, what are they notable for? Uh, they actually, at one point, were producing the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 at See, once. Now I know them. <laughs> um, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're a massive company, 200,000 plus employed around the world. So, uh, yeah, my, uh, my boss that hired me joked, uh, we are the biggest company no one has ever heard of. So yeah, that, that is insane. That is a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. So I was in their automotive division doing um, uh, lighting and uh, a couple of, and then the mechanical casings for a couple of their lighting products. So um, actually it was pretty cool. So like uh, one thing I was working on the Jeep Wrangler overhead lighting. Um, the, the one that just came out like, three months ago and it was really kind of like cool seeing it in person for the first time because did you like go into a dealership yeah no i actually went to the toronto auto show and it just like pressed oh it. nice <laughs> yeah but uh no sorry i'm getting back to what i was saying so yeah it's a two hundred thousand plus employed company and the office i was working in was actually acquired uh from a different company called magna international they're the second largest tier one supplier for automotive so they're huge too they're also two hundred thousand ish employees uh so it was just like this office that was shuffled from one massive corporation to another and um i remember that the ceo from Plextronics came when we they just got a new office in my second semester working there so they decided to bring up some of the executives to show them this new 
uh, automotive office. And, you know, everyone was like, you know, big scramble, everyone clean your desk, you know, look like you're working. And then, you know, no one ever even like batted an eye, you know, I'm just a student. They just kind of waved by and said, maybe said hello, introduced themselves once. And then they were back to California, you know. And then I was thinking, um, like, I'm a n nobody for these people. The highest I can probably go in this company m most likely is that office, maybe like higher upper management in that office or run that office. Um, you know, it would be, I find in these big companies, especially when I looked into a lot of these uh, executives in huge companies, they got there by normally, not saying everyone, of course, um, normally they got there by getting swapped over. So getting bought out by, from a different company. So they reached very high up in a medium or small company and then they were brought into these big companies. Um, so then it, it kind of should, and then I asked around and there wasn't a lot of uh, internal promotion. I mean, there was to a point, but not a massive amount. Of course, everyone's protective of their positions and, um, a company sees success from another company and wants to grab it. So I decided to go look for next co-op into a different company just to try it out. And that's when I came across Mitchell Plastics. So they're only about 4,000, 5,000 ish. So they're still relatively large. I mean, we have, they have uh, five plants in North America making automotive decorative parts. Um, but the thing that really kind of won me over was um, I was in the corporate office and I know the CEO by name and I, my offer letter came from the director of engineering. So it kind of was like, okay, the, the, basically this, and the director of engineering is uh, just one down from their VP because they're still doing rel uh, corporate organizational structure, uh, reorganizing their structure because they just went through a massive expansion uh, recently. Uh, so yeah, it, it kind of just, I didn't want to waste an opportunity when basically like a third, a second in command gives me an offer and then the CEO knows me by name and knows where I'm from and kind of, you know, said, told the director to, yeah, for sure, give him a job. So that's kind of where my mindset is, right? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really interesting. You say that that's a, a an observation that I had a very similar one at at one point, and that's what got me sort of working for startup companies. Uh, yeah. w would you say that that that's common for uh, mechanical engineers, or do you think most of them, you know, in your program would drift towards those massive companies where they're sort of like, you know, sort of nameless, or you know, they're just like another person there. Um. I'd say there's about three quarters would just go to a big company just to say, you know, I worked in Google, I work in Google, I work in Apple. It was funny. One of my friends that was in Google. Uh, he's like, yeah, man, it's like a dick measuring competition over there. It's like, I'm Apple, I'm in Google and you know, I'm in Yahoo, I'm in Facebook, you know, <laughs> just quit. Um, just just working for those tech companies is you know a lot of people's dreams which is fine i'm not like beating up on it, it it's I, it's cool to like apple does a lot of cool stuff google does a lot of cool stuff but if you i just think um 
and and then there's a large majority that want to start something um, in that quarter there's about half that want to start something but don't know what and may never even come to that conclusion so they kind of just go into whatever company they they can and then the other half of that quarter um is like you know I, i'm gonna start something no matter what uh, which is good you know but th there's a lot of risk involved in that too so i'd like to say that i'm in that quarter uh, that i really want to start something i i do uh, but i'm also taking a cautious approach because um you know i still want to stay in the country and like you know if i don't have a job i can't stay here yes, yeah up. yeah that's a unique so, situation there it's like people are getting recognition from you know they're either getting like that recognition for being a part of a massive company they're either you know like in your situation where they're getting recognition for joining a smaller company because you're working directly with higher up executives and then there yeah. are those you know the even slimmer few of the population that are you know not really going to get recognition but willing to take a risk in entrepreneurship exactly and uh, yeah I, I want I'm kind of like split between the two I, I really want to take that risk and I kind of you know if there's any time I want to I should start something it's now I, mean, I have not I have very little to lose and I've my like my parents are relatively well off so I have like a cushion to fall on but yeah it, it, you know, striking the right balance is, is my biggest challenge. I can see that. Uh, what, what would you, have you thought of like, um, you know, a business plan or an idea or is, is anything that's sort of like sticking in the back of your mind that you're like, you know, someday I'll be able to launch that company or anything like that? Um, for now, it's just that uh, pipeline thing. So I was, um, I want to have some, if anything, I want to, be the like uh, executive it's a startup so I'd be everything at once and then positions would be confined but if there's anything I want to launch it's that and I think the be best way to do it is through um, investments back home in the Middle East because a lot of them a lot of people in the Middle East when they invest they're kind of hands-off as long as you're making them money and and they don't always ask for majority ownership. So they're just in, involved in the way of support, but not, you know, I own you, this is ours. Um, whereas in North America, when I was talking to Bijan, the PhD that made the sensor, and he was trying to give this, sell this technology for a, uh, about a year now, uh, a lot of the US Canadian companies, uh, which, which is understandable, they, they wanna, you know, buy 60, 70%, and then it's theirs, you know, and then you're like this, again, you're this peon in a, in a big company. I mean, you still have a large part, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's tough position. Um, I'm almost more draw, drawn to the uh, working in like uh, the job I have lined up and, and, working my way up and trying to expand them something that's already there because there's a lot of growth there's a lot of potential growth there and um i think i can move up very quickly throughout the company and do something exciting there and my passion does lie in automotive but um i also really want to start my own thing too so yeah uh, kind of 
split. Yeah, I can see that because it's uh, it's sort of like you you have the advantage of you know climbing the ranks in a small or medium sized company, maybe moving over to a large company, or just starting fresh. Let me ask you what what are your what are your thoughts on Tesla? If your passion is automotive, Tesla Tesla is an incredible company. I think uh, Elon Musk is uh, <laughs> very very ambitious man to put it lightly. I, I know one of my friends actually. Uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, students here that go to Tesla for internships, and one of my friends actually tried to book a meeting with Elon, and uh, his his secretary says uh, Mr. Musk has every uh, every five minutes planned out for the next three months. I'm sorry, he cannot meet with you. That is amazing. Wow. But anyway, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, my. Uh, Tesla is a great company. I think they're trying to do something that's great. Uh, there is a push towards electric and autonomous. There's no doubt about it. It's for whoever uh, change change in the. Uh, that's one thing I was. Um, I have a course right now uh, called uh, uh, Design and Society. Uh, design, uh, sorry, Society, Technology, and Design. Um, and what we went over is, um, you know, we, we like to say, you know, in tech, there's a revolution, um, you know, but revolution always, um, implies that it's a sudden change, you know, it happens instantly. But in, if you think about it, there's no product ever that changed instantly that, that revolutionized overnight. Cause you know, they say, the iPhone revolutionized smartphones. It, it was a jump, but there was only cut screens and there was already, you know, they used a lot of technology that was there and then they put implemented it into a product and they put it all together and, and uh, change is always slow. So, it's, and that's especially true with anything that has to do with any government. So the fact, uh, sorry, uh, so, um, uh, the autonomous features in the Tesla, um, they can they can drive you from point A to point B, like no problem. If you put in the destination and let that thing go on its own, you, you actually don't have to ever touch the steering wheel. They, they've done it. But um, getting the government to accept these uh, autonomous vehicles and getting the public to be... Um, uh, okay with you know letting a machine drive them it, it is is the is the uh, is like the the drawback is holding it back um so i think what tesla's trying to do is incredibly important it's it's bringing autonomous technology in to the norm like you can buy model 3 for 35k in the U, uh, us and and have these autonomous features and hopefully get comfortable with them over time. And then, you know, the, fu the future is leading towards fully autonomous cars because they're just safer. I mean, even the, they might crash once or twice, whereas we would crash 10,000 times. But the yeah, problem right. is- You always hear about in the news when they do. Yeah, but the problem is taking the stigmatism away from uh, putting your life on the line, uh, losing the control of your own fate is one very big ethical dilemma facing autonomous vehicles and 
once we cross that barrier, I think we, we will accept them. But um, I, think, I think a lot of people think that it's just going to happen overnight, that we're going to have these self-driving cars, like, you know, complete self-driving cars all, uh, just next month or next year. I think it's going to take a very long time. And I think the government needs to be very heavily involved to make sure that the automakers are held liable and to press them to do it properly. Because, you know, a lot of the times I, I would hate to see it again, like um, when GM had a uh, key ignition start issue, which killed around 8,000 people. Um, I, I would hate And then, you know, the government had to step in and say, no, you're liable for this. Uh, and, the, and GM still kind of managed to snake their way out of it. I would hate for that to happen again. Um, there needs to be proper regulations in place and proper implementation in place. And I think it's going to be a huge collaborative effort to bring autonomous technology to the norm. And then as well as electric technology, because the electric cars are, are, they are better than gas powered cars. Like I love, I love a good engine. I love a good V8, <laughs> but um, electric cars are just simply better. They they have instant torque. Um, they're quieter. Uh, they're more efficient in terms of energy usage. Um, just the space they open up in the vehicle is far greater. Um, so the biggest drawback of an electric car, uh, except if you're in California, if you ask me, is the infrastructure. There's no there's no infrastructure. Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah. So for example, I would love to, like, I'd love to, my car to be a, like my next car to be electric car or a Tesla or something like that. Like it doesn't have to be a Tesla. That's the thing. Um, I don't think Ford's announced it. Well, I'm sure if you do a Google search, you'd find it, but Ford is right now working on a Tesla model three competitor. And that's going to be released in about five, five ish, four ish years. See, I think that's what, Tesla did that was so interesting is you know they they still get hated on every day I mean we won't we don't have to go into like the SEC lawsuit they got yesterday but uh they they got so much hate just for having the ambition to launch like a you know a practical electric vehicle and then in the matter of you know it's been about what 10 years since you know they really started taking off and in that time frame all the major electric or all the major car companies are making a total flip trying to compete with the model three with the model s and and just what elon is up to and um i mean like i think it's a you're in a very unique situation because uh you know it's sort of like uh, being being entrepreneurially minded and also being a mechanical engineer is a very it seems to be like a really rare characteristic and so I'm trying to boil down. I'm asking about like, you know, how many people are in your class? How many people like are going to a big company? It's because it's like, how do we get more people like you into entrepreneurship to build companies? Because it seems like that's what's really needed to, to, you know, be disruptive the way that Elon's been able to be. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, the, the thing is, uh, I, I, I always had this philosophy that, you know, the, the world kind of runs on balance. Um, you can't have every person like me to want to be driven and start a new company because 
I, I when you start a new company or when I start a new company or whoever, we still need people to work with us and for us. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, if you actually, I, I found a recent statistic that, you know, you hear startups are popping up all the time, but actually in the U.S., uh, the amount of registered companies is slowing down. Really? Yeah, um, which was really surprising for me. I, I wish yeah, I could. I never heard that. You know, I wish I could. I think it was an article. Yeah, I read an article. I wish I could. Uh, it was about half a year ago. I, I'm not sure why I read it. But you, you can fact check me on that. I'm not 100% sure. But I mean, it seems. I, I, I definitely read it. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's. Uh, another big thing is um, manufacturing. It, before, you could start up a very. Uh, you can start a trades company before really simply, you know, fabricating something. And uh, now with mass production, it's a lot harder to do that. But the thing that came in to replace it is software. All you need to do to start a software company is a laptop. Start typing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I think there will be a huge shift towards, um, there is already a huge shift towards um, startups being software-based in the U.S. And, and a lot more people, I think uh, schools as well, should t- start teaching coding so one thing, I, I, uh, the first time I was exposed to coding was here in Waterloo uh, in, a, in a university called, uh, course uh, that taught us to use C++. Okay. Uh, and I'm still pretty bad at coding. Like, it, it makes a lot of log- logical sense because it, it's set up as a language. You know, it, it, it is a language you need to learn and, and there's a lot of math involved and stuff like that. So you do need math and uh, physics or anything else that you need to make your software app. Um, but yeah, the, I think, uh, the push has been really slow towards schools implementing, uh, software based courses. Are you familiar with any, uh, like back in your, you know, like native country, like, are you, are you, uh, from, do you, are they building out sort of those programs for, for young kids or are they ahead or Um, or North America? uh, North America, I feel has a huge push and some other countries do. Um, Sadly, um, you know, I I, I like to pride myself that I I am Serbian, but um, the place I grew up isn't, the place I was born isn't exactly the the greatest country in the world in terms of opportunities. It's, uh, it's very, limited to uh, connections and to get a proper job and stuff like that. And the schooling system has fell behind the high schools, like uh, primary school to high school has fell behind in terms of uh, what's relevant right now. Uh, Universities. Yeah. But uh, I I feel like universities like Serbia's universities are still relatively um up to date because uh, when i talk to a lot of uh, you, well you know uh, our mutual connection my cousin david um he uh you know he, he's taught everything that i see uh our ece our electrical students taught here and and 
And we do, Serbia still does produce very well-educated young people and their biggest problem is retaining them. Because, for example, my, uh, one of my very good, one of my good friends and uh, just finished just finished his master's degree in Cambridge uh, um, uh, for economics. He's a, uh, but he also did his undergrad in uh, in Belgrade. And when he went to Cambridge, uh, the the government of Serbia said, "Okay, we'll we'll send you to the UK. We'll cover all your expenses. But when you come back, you work for the Serbian government." Yeah, you know. And and they are pushing towards that, but you know I I wish there was more back home because uh, one one big thing I'm trying to do is uh, with the uh, Mitchell Plastics I was thinking of opening a branch back in Serbia. It will take like a lot of work and a lot of persuading and and uh, luckily my my dad has some governmental connections back home, but that's like a long term plan and. Um, a far more ambitious one than even my startup. <laughs> yeah, that seems like uh, like if someone can crack the code on that, it seems like there's this problem globally where everyone flocks to sort of these hubs of technology. Like, you know, I, even just na- in the United States here, I, I came from the East Coast in Massachusetts. I moved oh, nice. To where the tech is happening, moved out here to, you know, to join a, a more active, uh, you know, solar industry in California. Uh, and yeah. so it's, it's like, well, at what point do people return back home and, and bring their skills with them instead of sort of operating into these bubbles of Silicon Yeah, it, it creates overpopulation and oversaturation. One, one, one good case study, I would think, is the UK, where, you know, they had their industrial boom in their colonies, you know, decades ago, centuries oh, ago. Yeah, centuries ago. I don't want to miss it. Um, uh, and you, now you see like, there's, sorry, I, I need to, I don't want to be misleading. Sure. Yeah, so the population of the UK right now is 65.6 million people on a, on a little European island, right? And this is, um, and this is, People from all over their colonies, you know, Indians, Pakistanis, uh, Brits, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and it, it, it's so oversaturated, and and, um, and they they legitimately can't um, support even uh, influx of like people who want to work there, like actually people who will add to their economy because. They have more than enough people. I mean, Canada has half their population and how, mu- how many times more their land, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's so that, that, that's another thing when I was thinking, I was so glad that I came to Canada because um, when I go on LinkedIn, for example, I see a job pop up every day, but my friends in the UK who are UK nationals are struggling. Not not all of them, but some of them are. Yeah. And... and um, yeah, there comes a point where a hub, you know, has way too many people. And then, and then because it's a hub, not exactly everyone that's useful in terms or relevant in terms of what that region is trying to do 
flocks there too because of the economic op- of what they perceive as economic opportunities. So it's just this perpetual mo- motion where uh, the population grows and grows and grows, as you probably see in California. It's you know pe- not only are people flocking to California internationally, they're flocking locally, right, from the U.S. as you have. There's some migration. Believe it or not, though, the, there's a massive migration out of California now. Um, yeah. The, I think it's sort of it, like the pendulum has started to swing back the other way, where so many people came out here and, and you know, like I'm, I'm down in Southern California where there's, it seems like there's almost no natives. Like it's like a huge majority are, are people that have come from other places, um, whether yeah. internationally or, or from like the East Coast or whatever. And now you're seeing a lot of like Californians moving to places like Texas. Yeah, it it makes sense, you know. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty that, that's another thing. Like a lot. That's why a lot of the, my my school was filled with UK uh, nationals. You know, <laughs> there's not enough in the UK, so they moved somewhere else. And there there's a huge population of uh, people from the UK and the Middle East, like Dubai, Qatar, uh, Abu Dhabi, because the opportunities are better and than back home. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting stuff. So yeah. What, what kind of gives you the motivation to, you know, have these ambitions, you know, and to, to even think about big problems like that? Um, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, uh, I, I think it just, uh, I think when you break it down, I think everyone's searching for their own happiness and just reaching an achievement of that extent would bring me like a sense of fulfillment. Um, and I was always kind of doing something. Um, and I never really, like when I started, when I was a kid, I started to swim and I I didn't stop training swimming until I was like the captain of my school and I won a lot of galas. Um, and then that kind of got boring for me. So I swapped to tennis and then I didn't stop tennis until um, I won a lot of tournaments and I was the number one in my club and stuff like that. So it's a constant strive for me to improve upon myself. And one quote that really got to me last year, I I really need to start writing down who said what. Um, uh, if you if you don't look back on yourself in a year and say what an idiot you didn't you didn't do it right. Yeah. So let me yeah. ask you this: what what kind of things do you do now? You know, you mentioned some of your athletic uh, you know achievements in the past. What kind of things do you do now on a daily basis? You know, some sort of like habits or routines to improve yourself. Um. One thing I started to do this year is wake up early. So not crazy early, like 6 a.m. Well, I mean, I know a lot of people do that too. But uh, I wake up, I always wake up before 8 and then um, have smoothie for breakfast and then just get the day started early, whether that's go to the gym, just do something, just uh, get my mind working straight away in the morning. I find really energizes me. And, um, and yeah, um, I mean, as a student, your schedule has to be relatively fluid. But when I was working, it, it, uh, yeah, you, you fall into a routine and 
and um, just ha like having a well-rounded lifestyle, I think really helps. So, you know, you know, not every person needs to be jacked and goes to the gym every time, but it's good if you go for a run at least once or twice a week. That's what I try to do. Uh, go to the gym at least twice a week. And then just, um, yeah, balance, balance is really important. That, that's the only thing I can really, um, trying to balance social life with um, love life and school and work. That's where I find kind of settles me. What settles me really, yeah. Tell me what what would you say is the biggest risk you've ever taken? Risk? Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, hmm. Um, I would say my biggest risk was one that comes to mind recently is um. I wanted to do this project. Um, so I wanted to create a uh, car interior that was uh, oriented towards autonomous driving. And one thing Mitchell Plastics is known, known for in the automotive industry is their uh, uh, air outlets. And like, it's a, it's a very specific thing, but you know, <laughs> someone's got to do it. Um, so I thought of a design that would, uh, so it, it, the, the basis of the concept is it uses control, control air volume flow to change the direction of air. So the Tesla Model 3 uses the same concept. Um, if you ever go in it, like the, the outlet, you control it on the screen, and then it, it just kind of like comes out of the slot in different directions. Yeah, I've seen like a whole demonstration of that. It just sort of like flies out and you can raise or lower it. Yeah, and, and the way it raises and lowers is really cool. It, it, I don't know if you saw it. It, it has a little, uh, little opening on the bottom. And so there's this main channel of air going, vertic uh, going straight. And then this uh, little channel of air that's underneath it. And then if it ever wants to go up, all they do is increase the flow with a flat to that smaller section and that raises or lowers the airflow. So it uses a second stream of air to change the direction of the, the main stream. Uh, that's pretty cool. So that, that's the basis of the technology, uh, of what I wanted to do. But um, their system is like fully integrated. So their dash is made for that. Whereas I wanted to make a singular outlet that used it. Um, so I created, uh, so I just walked into the engineering director's office and I, I just told him the idea that I had to create a single outlet using this technology. And, um, and I was like, do you want, like, let's sell this. Do you, do you want to, uh, like exhibit this to customers? And he, he, and that was just me going on a whim that, you know, it, it might be something new. And uh, I'm currently working on the second iteration. It worked the first time. We were just refining the aesthetics. Um, I would, I know it's not a huge risk, but <laughs> it, 
is is the only thing that came to mind right now. It's just yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, like, um, I mean, I, I like where your head's at because I ask that question to a lot of different people, and I like to just see sort of where they go with it. Whether it's like you know some big volume of like you know move from different countries, you know you move across an ocean to be you know out here for university, or where your head went at was you know more of like a like sort of like a um, a design risk, you know like yeah yeah you know, it was like, like a, I don't know I I'm I'm almost like it really for some reason it really didn't scare me when I moved out to Canada like. Only my, my dad came with me and uh, I came on the first day of like Prosh, you know, like introduction. And I saw him for about two days and then he left and I was left by myself. And I felt like that independence was really lacking in my life. I, like the last year I was back home in guitar, I, I wasn't unhappy, but I was definitely like, um, irritated that I constantly had to tell my parents where I was or where I was going or, or even just like I'm gonna take the car or, or something like that I, like I know it's like a first world problem the fact that I <laughs> my parents weren't even that restrictive like I, I would just tell them where I was going I didn't have to um ask them a lot of the time even for permission yeah but it, even it, it's it's yeah someone have tabs on you all the time it's like when you exactly yeah exactly so it wasn't really a risk for me to move out here it was just kind of like i'm gonna i'm gonna study here i'm gonna do school um and then i don't know my girlfriend was here she was also like a good she was good support in getting me like acclimatized to how people do things in canada and stuff like that just kind of getting over the cultural shock come but yeah uh, yeah, I really, what I view as risk is uh, taking a risk on something that you know might not work, but you have a gut feeling that it will. That That's more of a risk for me than, than just like, I, I don't know. It is a risk when you move somewhere without a plan, <laughs> yeah. but I, I had a plan what I was going to do when I moved out here, so it wasn't risk <laughs> in that sense. You know? So tell me. Yeah. What do we got to do? What could we do to get more of your peers interested in starting their own venture, starting their own company instead of going with the herd, going with the flow, moving to California? Please don't come out of California. The guys I'm going to hang out with tonight, I swear, like seven of them already have offers at Apple. So there's seven more people that are moving out in like eight months. <laughs> I don't think we can hold them there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have the space anymore. <laughs> have you talked to them about that? Do you say like, hey, I mean, like, like. I, I, I do, but, you know, um, I, I tell them what I'm doing. Um, I have my close group of friends that, you know, we're doing this project about with the pipeline. And every single, us, every single one of us is in the mindset of we want to start something. We don't want to just be the herd. And it's funny, like, it's not just, you know, uh, there's a huge, in high school, I, I always did get good grades and stuff, but my parents kind of really softened their um, expectations for grades once I went, came to university. And a lot of it's to do that. I'm actually not doing that great. Like, my GPA is pretty low. Uh, 
but it definitely didn't reflect on how I performed at work. Um, like I, I was just nominated for co-op student of the year by my university because I have um, the highest, like all our employers rank us at the end of our work term. And I have uh, all, so we do six semesters and all but two, I have the highest ranking and then the other two have the second highest rank from my employers. Wow, so, cool. Well, you do yeah. know this is the Knowledge Without College podcast, so that's what I like to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you definitely don't need, like, one thing I really want to emphasize is good grades don't mean success, especially in university. Um, uh, like, my, my group of friends, we're, we're a mix of guys, like two of us, me and my friend Shrang that lives in the room next to me. Uh, we're, we're like struggling. We're getting like six, six, high 60s, 70s. Uh, and then an- another one of my friends is getting, he studies the night before an exam and gets like a 90. Um, so we're, there's no indication of who's going to take the risk in terms of grades. And that's one thing I think our education, like any education system around the world, really doesn't emphasize because it makes you feel like crap when you're not performing well, but it definitely doesn't mean you won't be successful later on. Yeah. Like um, a quick example is my dad's best friend from high school. He, he didn't go to university. Um, he was doing really bad in high school, but he was always really likable character. Um, and right now he's working in an insurance firm in Switzerland, getting like, half a mil a year, you know, it, yeah. I would consider that like, successful. What you do after university than, than what you do right now. So exactly. I'm curious. So out of your friends, it seems like all your friends are, uh, or you have a group of friends that are very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Do you think it's a contagious thing or do you think you all sort of like, you know, uh, you know, sort of like conglomerated because of that shared interest? Um, I, I think it's a, we, so we kind of met through, just we're in the same class. Um, I don't think it's contagious. I think it's a, it's a mindset of, of wanting to take a risk. Not being, it's not wanting to, it's not being scared of taking a risk. Um, So we, we kind of just figure, you know, Screw it. Like, why, why not? <laughs> what do we have to lose? How, how do you um, think you got to that mindset originally that, that, you know, not like you're willing to take a risk because like, you know, what are the consequences? Like, how do you think, how do you get to that point? Um, I think, uh, I don't think it can be relatively taught. I think it's, it's it's a progression of a of a person that just sees that there are a lot of issues in the world and or or even just um, or even just like a, a sense of fulfillment for them for just to actually no every every single business is there to solve an issue or to better lives right. Whether it's a company's life, a company's issue, yeah, or or you know the public's, and most of the 
all, all the biggest companies, except for a couple, are really serving the public, whether it's, you know, Apple's the biggest company right now. They, they, they serve the public with phones, really. Yeah, exactly. um, they make products to improve our lives. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, that mindset of seeing the problem and wanting to fix it, I think it's something that you have to, it has to be there to an extent. And then there's external influences that um, would spur you on. For example, my parents are actually incredibly conservative in terms of like big, big, big steps. Um, the reason my dad went to Qatar was really because he was, um, part of this part of the Serbian company that he's still part of, um, um, that he was really hiding from the Serbian Bosnian war, you know, um, he, uh, and then it just turned out great. Like Qatar is now the richest country in the world per, per capita, I think. Yeah. Per like per salary per person. Um, yeah. It, and I would, and he, even when he like invests and stuff, he's very cautious. So he invests in real estate and stuff like that. And, and um, yeah, he, it definitely wasn't in my upbringing to take risks. My parents are kind of like taken aback when I tell them, you know, I, I talked to the CEO this morning. I, I went on, you know, I'm, I went for lunch with the director of engineering. I, I want to start this company. Hey, dad, you know, fucking go, go ask someone if they want to buy this product. I mean, you're in hydro. Like I'm the one pushing my dad to, to get, get me investors. So I, it, it's a bit of external factors and then it's a bit of just your personality. I think I don't, I don't think anyone should be pushed to be an entrepreneur, but nor do I think they should be suppressed if they have an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, do you feel like there's um, well, one thing you, you mentioned earlier was that there is, you know, like half of a quarter of your, you know, classmates are they want to start their own thing, but they just don't know what to do. That's great. That, that's, that's just like the personality without the because I knew I wanted to do something bigger. Like even when I was in Flextronics, I uh, I was um. I was constantly thinking about how I, like I, I had a really old car. I had an old car at the time, like a 2002 Mini Cooper. And I was, and I was using my phone as a, <laughs> like that car broke down a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I installed just like a Bluetooth audio system. And then I had my phone constantly as my, uh, you know, entertainment for Spotify and stuff like that for music. And I was thinking why a lot of these cheap cars, especially in like Serbia, India, Mexico, um, they don't have infotainments because it's too expensive for the, the, the auto manufacturer to install one with a screen and stuff and still make it a viable price. But every single person in Mexico and in India has a smartphone. Like it's, you know, there's hundred dollar smartphones in India. There's yeah. hundred. $200 smartphones in Mexico and they can all afford it. So I was thinking, why, why don't we use our, especially for these entry level cars, why don't they have a system where you can use your phone as the infotainment system? 
And um, I was trying to pitch this to Flextronics. Uh, I was talking with the manager of R&D. And that's, quite, again, when I kind of realized how big this company was and how little impact even the manager of R&D for this, uh, for this place had. Because well, I pitched this idea to him and he was like, yeah, it's a really good idea. Um, but, you know, we don't have the capacity to work on it right now. And then a year later, uh, Volkswagen uh, in their VW Up uh, <laughs> released exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> Like, and, and that's kind of when I knew I was, I'm just going to keep thinking of something that I can come up with, um, and try to get there first. Um, so I, I just, the thing I find myself, like whenever I see a problem, I, I try to find a resolution for it. So with this technology that you're working with right now, it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, like what kind of problems do you think you'd be able to solve, you know, down, down the same vein? Um, so the biggest thing right now, so it's mostly for environmental and sustainability impacts. So, um, right now the way they, they inspect pipes is they legitimately take a, a robot robotic device called a smart PIG pig usually, and they put it down the pipeline. So they shut off the pipeline and they put this robotic device that uses some of the technology that we're going to use, but not all of it, to scan the inside of a pipe. And that means shutting off the service. And then the, the doctor, the, the, the guy I'm working with, Bajan, yeah, he worked in piping a lot. And that's how he came up to this uh, technology. Um, he, he said, you know, when, and he came from Iran. He, uh, he said, you know, when we put these smart pigs into the pipe, we pray that it'll come out the other end. So, and these are like $100,000 devices as well. Wow, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and it, then this technology would make um, inspecting pipelines far easier, far faster. And uh, you could then, therefore, you can take preventative measures way faster too, right? So you see a rust, uh, uh, a, uh, a crack that's going to see um, oil, then you can straight away start uh, doing preventative maintenance as opposed to, uh, you know, something like you actually blew up and you have to yeah, you gotta, you gotta maintain the whole situation, right? So that's what this technology is really uh, striving to do. It's uh, incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, pipeline. But that, that's the thing, you know, hydro is such a well-established thing. Uh, you know, the corporations are so well-established, again, because, you know, there's usually governments involved. And when, when the safety of people is involved, especially in engineering, everyone takes it super seriously, as they should, and, and stuff progresses slowly. Mm -hmm. So it plays both to our advantage and disadvantage in terms of this is non-distractive passive testing that, you know, all we have to do is come out to your pipeline site and, and try it out and show you that it works. Um, on the other hand, uh, these hydro companies that are very conservative might be 
slow in implementing the technology and changing their standards and everything like that. So it's a much a lot of this technology. Sorry? Are you selling or using this technology? Like, like, is it being adopted widely or are you guys like sort of like, no, there's only one other British company that has something similar. Wow. So this is California. I don't really trust the pipes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, 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 he owned the, Bijan only developed a year ago, so it's relatively fresh and uh, we're trying to get projects with it and show it to potential clients. Wow. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe some of those clients might be, might someday listen to this very podcast. <laughs> that sounds like a really cool technology and it's, uh, it's really awesome that you're working on it. Um, Thank you. I gotta say, man, I didn't even look at the clock for a while here, and I just yeah. we've run up like over an hour and ten minutes here. Yeah, wow, yeah. It's been you know, a while. I want to respect your time. I mean, do you have any uh, any final message or, or ask or request that, that you have for for the audience here, or anyone that listens to this? Any, any bit of advice or wisdom or anything that you'd want to just spread out to the world? Yeah, um, one. You know, you, I, I, I like the name of your uh, show, Knowledge Without College. And I, I agree that um, there's, um, there's a lot of circumstances in what you can and want to do that you don't need a formal education for. For what I am, for what I want to do, engineering, um, you do, you need that formal education. But um, whatever... Whatever, don't ever start to do something just because you know your parents said it's the right thing to do. The the goal of I at least in my eyes the goal of life is happiness and and whatever makes you happy is what you should be doing. And one thing that really because my first semester here was like I remember coming back home in Qatar in December and just like bawling to my mom that I hated it because. Uh, I did really poorly that semester. I passed with 1%, like over the, the minimum requirement. It was really hard for me. Like, um, and then I started to work right when I came back in December, uh, in January. And I realized, yeah, th- this is what I want to do. Engineering is what I want to do. Like, I want to, like, it makes an impact on the world. And um, that's what kept, like, that's why I stuck through with the program. But honestly, if one thing I really want to stress is um, if you have time in the summer or whenever it is in college, try to do something in your relevant field to really get a feel if it's for you. Because if it isn't for you, you're just wasting your time and wasting someone's money. And don't let grades hold you down because especially in higher education these universities are businesses at their core and they want (laughs) you make a lot more money for them if you stay there for a year than if you stay there throughout your whole semester (laughs) so like they're trying to kick you out essentially they might not advertise it and of course they need people to pass but there's an incentive to kick some people out um, and yeah, so don't let grades hold you down and uh, just 
if you know you want to do something, just go for it. And I love that advice. I think that's really awesome. Uh, you. You know, I can tell you you've used that in your own life, and I, and I hope you can you can keep on doing what you're doing, man, because we need more entrepreneurial uh, mechanical engineers out there, more Elons of the world to uh, innovate new technology that's you know good for the public health. So, I mean, thanks for your time today. And, uh, thanks, man. you know, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.